does acceptable worship look like? Here we are, Sunday morning. We call it our worship service. And that's what we're doing. What is it supposed to be like? How do we know if we're on track? Everybody's got different tastes. Is there some biblical measuring stick? What does acceptable worship look like? The text is Hebrews 13. We're going to read the first six verses. Let brotherly love continue. I want you to notice these verbs. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That'll be interesting to look at. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, remember them as well, since you are also in the body, the body of Christ. Let marriage... It's like he jumps. Let marriage be held in honor. So he's not just talking about married people. He's talking about the way everybody views marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed, now he's talking about those who are married, let it be undefiled. And then the reason for God God will judge, God will judge the sexually immoral. You don't have to be married to be sexually immoral. And the adulteress, that refers more exclusively to the marriage relationship. So there's sexual impurity in general, single or married. And then there's a violating of the marriage relationship. And he says, don't do that. And his reason is God's going to judge. This is, new, this is not Old Testament. This is New Testament. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. Keep So, continue, don't neglect, remember, keep. Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For he said, this is Jesus, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So it's also an Old Testament quote. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man can do to me. Let's pray. We're so grateful, Lord, to come again to your word. There's just no confusing the practical instructions as we start to wrap up this letter And so give us understanding about all of these things. I want to pray. Church, just go with me here. I want to pray, Lord, for while we want the gospel to reach all people, we feel a particular need this day to ask for your mercy and grace when we read these words about sexual immorality 
and we feel the need to pray for your mercy on such a proud rejection of your created will for sexual relations and marriage. We just pray as a church without hatred for anyone but your loving creational intent. We feel we need to ask for your mercy on our land. We ask for your pardon. Open blind eyes and soften proud hearts. The Bible talks about people who are proud of things of which they ought to be ashamed. Heal our land. Say that with me, church. Heal our land. Heal our land. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In our text last week, our writer gave uh, the lead-in idea for today's passage. It's found in the 28th verse of chapter 12. And he says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And then this phrase, And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. What does acceptable worship look like? That's what he's continuing with. That's the theme of today's text. It's very typical. The pattern through the whole New Testament is that the writers lay down uh, doctrinal statements first and then apply them with practical application. So it's not just moralism, be a good person, have a nice marriage, tell the truth. It's not that. It's here's what you are in Christ. Here's what God has done for you in redemption. Here's what it likes to be partakers of a new nature. Here's what it's like to have a a heavenly priest who intercedes for you. So there's the theology, and then, therefore, dot, 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 you have these six concise statements in today's text. How thankful recipients... How thankful recipients respond in worshipful allegiance to their Lord. And so you can see what he's doing. You can see what our writer is doing. Immediately, our writer wants to do away with the extremely common false notion that the the liberty of grace eliminates the need for carefulness in duty. It's very common. We're just under grace. God just loves us all. Don't be so judgmental. Point number one. It's easier to begin in brotherly love, this won't be a newsflash to anybody, than to continue in its growth. Let brotherly love continue. And just the nature of the command, it, whoops, sorry. It seems to imply a, some kind of difficulty in preserving this grace in a local church like, like ours. Starting is easy. 
It's the continuing that isn't. Continue. Let brotherly love continue. So our writer describes brotherly love in terms that immediately make us aware, if we're reading carefully, that this grace of brotherly love is apt to weaken, fade over time, or perhaps even collapse through a fight or an argument, some kind of mistreatment, difficult circumstances. And so what he says is, you, you this... Don't let this happen. Don't let this fade. Don't give up on brotherly love. It is easier to feel the first emotional impulse of loving someone than the high cost of forgiving, self-sacrificing love when you start to see their imperfections. Anybody else ever seen imperfections in other people? There's very few of us that have no imperfections. So we learn brotherly love in the body of Christ is like love in a marriage. I'm constantly amazed. You know, the, the longer I pastor and the more I talk with people and the more you see stuff happen in the church. And, and you, I, I think of couples. You know, 35 years in a place, you get to see... A lot of things come and go. And I I think of couples, I married them, that couldn't, young love, and they couldn't wait one more minute to get married and be together. And I've seen that same couple can't stand the thought of staying one more day together. Starting in love is easy, isn't it? Bursts of love can be like that. Beginning isn't continuing. And so our writer, he says a mouthful in just four words. This mountainous challenge. Let brotherly love keep going. Who is there in this room right now? To whom those four words speak? Who is there whom you once loved as joyful members of a warm family of God toward whom you no longer continue that love in Christ? It was there once, but the sweetness is gone. The fellowship is gone. There's just this blank space where love used to be. There's an awkward silence when you see them. Let brotherly love continue. Let it continue. It's not as easy continuing as beginning. What do you think of when we sing a chorus like we opened with? The same power lives in us. Do you think of walking on water? Do you think of multiplying bread? Or do you think the power of Christ in you means you can go on continuing in love with imperfect people? Is that what the power of Christ does? It's supposed to. Here's all I know for sure. Wherever the blame lies in your mind, whatever reasons you can spin, whatever they did to hurt your heart, 
you need to remember the kind of love commanded in this verse. Let, let brotherly or sisterly love continue. Read those words with understanding. Our writer doesn't mean duty love as opposed to romantic love. He doesn't mean religious love as opposed to passionate love. There are clues. There are clues in this letter what he means when he says let brotherly love continue. Here's one of the clues. It's in the second chapter. Verses 11 to 13. For he who sanctifies, this is Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. It's God. This is why he is not ashamed, this is Jesus, not ashamed to call them, that's us, brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. So our love is brotherly love. Because we're all linked up together in Christ's love for us. Do you see it? We didn't... When you got saved... You didn't just get a relationship with Jesus. Maybe that's what you thought. When you got saved, you didn't just get a relationship with Jesus. You got a relationship with brothers and sisters. Not a pretend relationship. Oh, brother so-and-so. You usually do that when you don't know their name. Oh, brother, good to see you. It's not a glad-handing slap on the back. It's recognizing what has been accomplished through Christ. points out the transforming redemption is is what makes us children all children of one family you ever ever see a family where brothers and sisters hate each other it's pathetic happens in this family all the time and to the point to the point I don't continue Brotherly or sisterly love in Cedarview Community Church. I am affirming that I no longer need the continuing love of Jesus. My ongoing heavenly intercessor. We read about it. The bearer of all my present sins. The next time you see someone, a brother, a sister, in whom you are not continuing in that kind of relationship, you you need to stop and ask yourself... Where would I be if Jesus didn't... Where would, where would you be if Jesus didn't continue to love you? Do you have a good answer for that question? Where would you be if he didn't continue to bear your present sins? What, what would you do if... He turned away at every offensive attitude, every twisted affection, every proud word. Where would you be? Look at Jesus again. There's your model for continuing brotherly love. And then and then run to whomever wherever that love is breached in the body of Christ. 
and make it right. Either that or change your name, your family name. Stop calling yourself a child of God in Christ Jesus. Point number two. Kind of entertaining. Do angels need? Look at this verse. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So he's talking about hospitality to strangers. That's the command. And then there's a motive, thereby. Some have entertained angels. My issue with this verse, just before we start, isn't that I would doubt the existence or the presence of angelic beings just the way this verse describes it. Okay, I, I believe that happens because the Bible says so. I'm not aware of it, but then actually the Bible says I won't be. So I believe the verse is true. I want to get that off the table right away. My question is different. What, what would motivate the writer of this letter, what would motivate him to bring in angels at this point? Do angels need entertaining? What do you think the answer is to that question? I think no. Like, are they lonely? Do angels need cookies? Do angels love to drink decaffeinated beverages? Do they prefer lattes to cappuccinos? Do they need a pizza after church Sunday night? Are they just dying to see the latest movie? That's what I'm wondering. What is the real reason for that angel reference? Because I don't think angels need our entertaining in that sense. Here's what I think is going on. I think it's precious. The emphasis in this verse is clearly on showing brotherly love. That's the verse right before. But, but this time it's, it's to strangers and there's a reason for that emphasis it's easy to take a verse and just pop it out of a letter like this and forget those who first received the letter all these first readers persecuted Jewish believers coming to Christ and were seen as rebels and heretics and many were driven out of their own dwellings. We know that because we, we read about it. That's the advantage of do, doing a whole letter. Our writer says to his readers, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach. It's quite a word, isn't it? Reproach. I, I can't stand the sight of you. That's reproach. Get out of my sight. Reproach. Affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. Here it is. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a, a better possession. An abiding one. Now we have New Testament record of those kind of incidents. I won't bore you with it, but let me just show you. This is Saul, 
approving of the execution of, of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. These are Jewish Christians, like the ones to whom our writer is sending his letter. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except, except the apostles. Now, where would they go? Scattered. Your property taken. You have nowhere to live. And they're chasing you. Well, these scattered believers, most of them Jews, found the only place they could find. They went to other believers. Where else would you go? You know, you don't have a condo on the beach or a place in Florida or a place in Myrtle Beach. You got nowhere. And so they went to other believers. And God, get this point, God in his incredibly wise providence allows some Christians to escape this kind of persecution while others go through it. And here's the reason. In that way, there will always be some Christians who can offer hospitality and shelter to those who no longer have it. If it was to everyone equally all the time, there would be no one to whom these persecuted, estranged Christians could go. These seem verses that are sort of hard to relate to our present situation. Do you have an abundance right now? You may not always. Do you think it's just the result of blind luck that you have more than you need? Or do do you think God might, just might, plan to use you to be the supplier to someone, maybe in a land you've never visited, to bless some stranger who is presently in need? Just asking. Now back to the angels. And no, I don't think angels need entertaining. But here's what I do think. I think so lovely in God's eyes is it when blessed saints find their role in reaching estranged saints that God honors those times with with angelic ambassadors. It It is more special to God than we can possibly imagine. Angels want to see it. Somehow, our unsung ministry is divinely flagged, celebrated. One day, we'll hear about it from those angels. I saw what you did. What a blessed thing you did. You had extra. They had little. Way to go. I saw it. Three. It relates to the last point, but it's slightly different. Seek out the persecuted and the powerless. Hebrews 13, 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. That's amazing. 
and those who are mistreated. Since you are, you also are in the body. We are being called, this, this verse, for all of us, we are being called to risk for our faith. Our writer has already praised his readers for their um, costly identification with persecuted brothers and sisters. He did it in 1034. Look what he says here. You had compassion on those in prison. This is where this plundering comes in. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession. So, so they had compassion. Let brotherly love continue. Now it's on, it's on, it's on uh, persecuted Christians. Flagged Christians. You had compassion. They're in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Let me show you the risk here. Follow the, the logic. There were Christians who, who could have kept... They didn't have to go through this. They could have kept all their own property had they just decided not to visit those persecuted, mistreated Christians in prison. Because when I go to visit those persecuted Christians in prison, I am immediately flagged as you're one of them. I'm ashamed to say it. I think that would keep me from visiting. How about you? So they could have kept all their own property. They could have avoided all the heat had they just decided not to visit their mistreated brothers and sisters if they hadn't let brotherly love continue. But they joyfully accepted the plundering of the properties that they could have kept. We, we, we sing about Christian love like it's the inside of a Hallmark card and it usually isn't. It usually isn't. Not in this world. Our world hates Christian love inside the body of Christ because it hates Christ and it hates his church. It is a, hear me, it is a risky thing to stand with persecuted believers. Don't think of persecuted believers in China. I mean, you've, you've got a Christian who is vocal about his faith and he's in your class at university. And if you align yourself with him, you'll get the same kind of treatment he's getting. You see it? And so it's best just to be quiet. That's the situation we're taught. Don't think of something far away. It is a risky thing. You will stand out. You will share in their rejection, in their mistreatment. To love the mistreated is to come out of the safety of silence. 
It's, it's to come out of the Christian closet. It is the boldest coming out that has ever been. When you stand with dedicated, vocal, persecuted Christians. You'll be recognized. You'll be judged. You'll be called intolerant. You'll be spotted. It's pretty common. The first disciples ran. They saw Jesus abducted. Oh, they loved having him wash their feet and they sang a hymn and they had the last supper together. What a beautiful time. Everybody sang kumbaya, held hands. And then they see Jesus. And they're taking him to execute him. And the Bible says, they all ran. They all ran. Why? Um, you're not... You're not doing that to me. <laughs> they were the first ones to do it, but they aren't the only ones to do it. Most Christians are silent when there's that cultural, that cultural pushback to the things of Christ. Four. You can't trust your heart to automatically respond in love in these difficult situations. Now I want to take the first three verses together. We're almost done. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So let it continue. Do not neglect... And remember, you, can, you cannot, he's saying, he's saying there's a, there's a trained mindset that you have to have. You cannot count on the moment that you will automatically respond in the way you're supposed to respond. You won't. Unless you're constantly thinking about this. Our hearts cannot be trusted to rise to the occasion once in a while. My last minute response may not be good. So these verses call for a trained mind. They're direction-setting verses. My, my self-centeredness is never finally erased. And so these verses are calling you and me today... Not to be caught unready, not to be caught frightened because we're in a setting that rejects Christ and will be mocked. Don't be caught unready. Don't go into that class having not thought this through. Be prepared. Remember. Continue. Don't neglect. Think. So they're calling these verses, calling you, calling me to keep our minds engaged on this issue, to expect demanding choices to arise and to be ready for them. Five, moral purity is a ground zero must in the body of Christ and God will never change his mind on this. 
It's in that fourth verse. 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And then let the marriage bed be undefiled. And then the motive, God will judge the sexually immoral. It's one group, the adulteress. Remember where we are. Our writer is still unpacking what does it mean to 1228 to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe? How do we do that? What makes it acceptable? Apparently, acceptable worship isn't just singing worship songs in church with your eyes closed. There's a, there's a life behind the worship gathering. And moral purity is close to its center. So there are two directives here regarding marriage. They refer to the creation institution of marriage, God's design... Let marriage be held in honor among all. And then there's the sexual purity of the marriage relationship. Let let the marriage bed be undefiled. So first, the, the creation design. It's to be honored. And it's to be honored among all. So, so our creator's design, the one Jesus endorsed, it is to be held in honor as a vital center of the life of worship. The honoring of the creational design, heterosexual marriage, one man, one woman, permanent, is crucial for both those who are married and those who are unmarried. So we all are accountable to the creator for the view of marriage that they hold. Let me just say this. There, there never has been and there never will be such a thing as same-sex marriage. It will be culturally legal and acceptable for sure. But for our creator, there is no such thing. All right? It's, it's creationally designed. Pride is the term our culture has chosen to assert its willful rejection of our creator's design for human sexuality and marriage. And second, our writer specifically mentions again the judgment of God as the subject of sexual purity is introduced. It's in that last part of the fourth verse, 4b, I guess you'd call it. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and an adulteress. There's so much here, and I have to hurry. I am anxious. I'm anxious to speak deeply into the hearts of younger men and women who aren't yet married but hope to be. Please hear me wherever you're sitting. Your preparation for a great marriage doesn't begin with your pre-marriage counseling and it doesn't begin after your engagement when you're driving around looking for a great place to have your wedding reception. And it doesn't begin when you're looking for a photographer That's not where preparation for marriage begins. The preparation for a great marriage begins now, begins now, 
in your single state, your commitment to honoring the Lord with your sexuality the same way now that you hope you will honor him after your wedding day. Preparation for a great marriage begins now with a life dedicated to honoring him, obeying him. Put your finger, put your finger underneath those words and, and make your lips almost say them in that last part of the fourth verse of chapter 13 where it says, Let the marriage bed be undefiled. You can, you can bring defilement into your marriage. Rot. You can bring it with you into your marriage relationship. You can, you can defile your marriage before the ceremony. Don't sow unfaithfulness into your marriage before you even get there. To the married in this church, recently or scores of years ago, your ongoing love and faithfulness to your spouse is linked forever to your faithfulness to Christ. Protect faithfulness to your spouse. Guard it in your mind and in your social life. Time given to your, time given to your spouse daily is just as important to time given to Christ daily. Be unreasonably cautious about this. Rini and I have been married 42 years, coming up to 43. Both were virgins when we got married. And that meant a lot to me then, but not nearly as much as it means to me now. And I, I look forward to the day, it's coming faster than you think, where we'll be sitting in some, it won't be in a Tim Hortons, but we'll be sitting in a Starbucks. <laughs> and if Lord willing, Lord willing, I want to, I want to have both of us sitting there. She'll probably still look the same, but I'll be sitting there and we'll be 92 years old and all wrinkled and I'll look into her eyes and I'll say, we made it. We did it. Six. Keep your life free from the love of money. Oh, I wish this wasn't there. I always feel convicted. You probably do too. Don't you dare, by the way, sit here and think of somebody who has more money than you. This applies to us. Hebrews 3, 5, and 6. Is that up there on the screen? Can you put it up there? Read this with me out loud, everybody. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Now, one, two, three, four. Say the first four words and then stop. Keep your life free. That's weird, isn't it? 
Because I, I think of the money that I have as that's what gives me my freedom. Don't you? I want to travel. I want to buy something. I want to get a different car. Free. This is weird. When I was growing up, my parents dragged the four Horban boys off to prayer meeting every Wednesday night. And oh, how I wish I could tell you that we didn't find it unbearably boring. Of particular interest, we would nudge each other, was that unpredictable moment when people would give their testimonies. You would hear some amazing things. And if I had a buck for every person who quoted, I will never leave you nor forsake you, I could have retired years ago. But that's the only part anyone ever quoted. I never heard the rest of the verse. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Oh, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Isn't it interesting the way we said those four words out loud? Keep your life free. Who wouldn't want that? Well, we don't link freedom with the rest of the command. Keep your life free from the love of money. I think our writer knows we're smart enough to plan a strategy for success. We, we have a plan to make more money. But that's not the part of the plan our writer addresses. What is your, what is your plan What is your plan to keep your life free once you have the money? See, that's what what he's interested in. How are you going to do it? As a devoted follower of Christ, do you have such a plan? You're supposed to. Apparently, if if I keep... Keep your life free. Which implies that bondage is constantly encroaching, right? Lurking. Apparently, if I don't have a plan to keep my life free from the love of money, I will end up, even with my money, I will end up with the opposite of freedom. That's what he's saying. I will end up with lots of money and a tiny little shriveled up life and bondage. Me, Don Horvath. That's who I'm talking to. So this, this wonderful discovery of freedom won't just happen. That's why he says keep. Now look carefully at these words from Jesus. And this honest is the end. Talking to his disciples, no man, well, not just his disciples, you'll see in a minute. No servant can serve two masters and their masters. They're not just objects. That didn't go well, did it? There. No servant can serve two masters. Interesting, our text talks about keep your life free, and Jesus talks about 
a servant serving masters. And you can see how these things link up, right? Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve, you can't serve God and money. Here's the part. The Pharisees, and this is, this is one of the few places where you'll see this said of them, who are lovers of money. Now, tell me this, honestly. Who in all the New Testament, read the whole New Testament, who do you think hated Jesus the most? Who would you say? Absolutely the Pharisees. They whined at every miracle, everything he did, whether he was healing the blind or the lame, whether he was casting out demons, whether he was feeding the hungry. They, they were attacking him every second they had. Why? Why did they do this? And now you see, oh, they were lovers of money. They heard all these things. They heard Jesus talking about this, the danger that it can be. And they laughed. Now, everything hinges on what you see happening in that text. Jesus points out the spiritual antagonism of the Pharisees. And he's bold enough to expose its root. They were lovers of money. It's right there. Question. I don't want to be a lover of money, do you? Even if I have it, I don't don't want to be a lover of money. Most would say amen to that, wouldn't you? Okay. How, how can I know, how can I know if I am a lover of money? That seems to be the money question. How can I know if I have an inordinate love for money? Answer. I will find... They were lovers of money, and this is what they did. They ridiculed, they ridiculed Jesus when Jesus talked to them about their love of money. Jesus talked to them about their love of money, and the proof that they loved their money was they ridiculed Jesus when he talked to them about their love of money. In other words, they, you're sitting here this morning. You're sitting here this morning, and you're thinking, pastors just wants better offerings. That's what that is. Want no more cash coming through the door, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't love money. Give it away to the poor. We got it. Do the money shtick, Pastor Don. And Satan would love to have everyone here think like that. How can you tell if you're a lover of money? Answer, you will find some way to tune out what we're looking at right now. You'll dodge this part of the sermon. These religious people, Jesus tells them the source of their bondage. He exposes it clearly. And the best they can do is what lots of people do. Verse 14, they just ridicule them. Tune them out. The last thing in the world Satan wants is for materialistically inclined North American people, the last thing he wants is for people like we are to find the authentic freedom and the deepest eternal joy in God by using our money to extend Christ's kingdom 
and to set our hearts aflame with a deeper love for God. And so, yeah, just tune it out. That's what the Pharisees did. Let brotherly love continue. There are strangers you've never met. There are the persecuted and the imprisoned. There's a risk in loving persecuted Christians because you will be persecuted with them. Are you ready for that? Let marriage be honored by all. And, and let me tell you right now, that ties in perfectly with what our text says about expecting persecution. If you don't think you're going to be called every hateful name in the book just for honoring biblical marriage, I don't know what planet you're on. Remember that God will judge sexual immorality. Don't bring defilement into your marriage. The preparation starts now with a commitment to purity. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. And that, by the way, is what the Bible talks about when it says, let's offer to God acceptable worship. Everyone said? <laughs>